0: It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen, seals, the mark. How did the early church understand it all anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened, and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that, in the end, He wins. Jesus wins. Okay. Welcome back to the book of Revelation. We just finished our mini series called Deliverance. And now we're coming back to this really wild, helpful, encouraging, confusing book. Now, if you were with us at the beginning of this series, we were encouraged. We were inspired as we began to get some understanding around the first half of the book of Revelation. Now, before we dive in and finish out the book, the second half, I need to stop, like I did right at the beginning, and remind us of why this book was given in the first place. The book of Revelation was given for three distinct reasons, and we can't forget that. Number one, it was given to a real group of churches. 2,000 years ago, it was for them so they could walk close to Jesus. Second, it was given to them and other generations, of course, teaching them how to survive and thrive during persecution. In their time, of course, they're facing down Rome and different faiths and, and conflicts in cities. And so in other words, this is given to help Christians thrive in persecution. Third, this is given to remind us that Jesus owns every local church on earth. We don't own it. Jesus owns it, and he comes, and he specifically speaks, rebukes, encourages, comforts, and redirects local churches. And we've got to remember, those are the three reasons why the book of Revelation is written. Now, here's a mini version of what we've learned so far. The struggle between light and darkness has been happening between the first and second comings of Jesus, especially the resurrection. We're already living in the time of the four horsemen. We're already living in the time of the seals being broken and the trumpets being sounded. And if you're like, oh, I didn't think that, go back and listen to the series. In other words, the book of Revelation teaches us things will not get better. They actually will get worse. The way I phrased it earlier is we're living in the tribulation right now, but call it a small T tribulation. It will grow to a capital T as we end history itself. Now, we ended in chapter 10, and there in chapter 10, there was hope because we were called as churches to proclaim the life, (coughs) the death, and the resurrection of Jesus until he returns. Now, all of this matters as we come back to this book and chapter 11 and 12 specifically. Now, what's so interesting about chapter 11 and chapter 12 is the large picture that we're about to talk about is actually the summary of our last series called Deliverance. These two chapters, and a few more even beyond it, are about the spiritual war going on. As the gospel is being preached by the church throughout every century between the first and second coming of Jesus, the church will be attacked by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. Now, there are a ton of wild and strong images here in chapter 11, so let's try to work through them together so we can understand them and be encouraged. Now, some of us grew up in churches. Many of us didn't, but some of us did. And as you heard growing up chapter 11, you were taught all this is future tense and it is literal. In other words, there is going to actually be a new temple built in Jerusalem before Jesus comes back. And Moses and Elijah are literally going to come back to earth. If you read the Left Behind series or heard other teachers, they would say this. Now, now I, I appreciate my brothers and sisters in Jesus, but I think they've missed the point here specifically. See, chapter 11 is about two words. You can write them down if you want. Persecution and perseverance between the first and second coming of Jesus. This is what's happening now. Now, this chapter is broken down into three simple steps. You got the temple, then you got these two witnesses, and then you've got the idea that Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna vindicate the church. So temple, two witnesses, Jesus wins. So let's dive in like this. Revelation chapter 11, verse one. Now, I was given, this is John speaking. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, that's by Jesus, go and measure the temple of God. And the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to non-Jews, Gentiles. They're going to trample on the holy city for 42 months. So John is given a task by Jesus to measure the temple. And notice he's doing it in that moment. Now, many people have taught this again is going to be the literal temple of the Jews rebuilt in Jerusalem in the future. But I don't think that's what's being mentioned here. The temple between the first and second coming of Jesus is one thing. It's you. It's us. It's the church. We, for the last 2,000 years, are the living temple that John is measuring. The temple is the church, and the church is the temple. Remember, 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. First uh, Peter two five. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the church, and we are the temple. And then you're like, well, what's up with the forty two months? Well, that comes from Daniel chapter seven, and in that time, God was telling Daniel that there was a coming moment of terrible persecution by outsiders against the Jews. And that actually happened after the death of Alexander the Great by a really evil man named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what's interesting about that is it's already happened. But John chooses to look back at that known moment that the Jews all knew, and his point was this. Just like that terrible moment, those 42 months happened and ended, so we need to be reminded that persecution and resistance against God and the temple, the church, will not last forever. The point is, the battle is real now. The trampling is happening now. There is resistance for a period of time, but it's a never, it's not a never ending period, and that should inspire us to keep going. In other words, John was saying, just remember that terrible time of persecution, how it ended? Oh, so in the final end, all this is gonna end. Now, the symbols at this point become thicker, feel more unaccessible, but they're not. Jesus then says in Revelation 11.3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees, they are the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, this image of two witnesses has three facets like a diamond. First, it's rooted in the Old Testament rule about discerning truth. Comes right out of Deuteronomy 19:15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone or accuse or convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in the Jewish mind two means fullness, two means agreement, two means truth. So the point here is that these two witnesses are pointing to the truth. What they say is true and right, and God agrees with them. Okay, that's number one. Facet number two, there's two other Old Testament connections. The second one comes from Zechariah chapter three and four. There was a guy named Joshua, the priest, and a guy named Zerubbabel, the governor. And they were called the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Literally those two words or phrases. They literally existed and did a rule, but they were a foreshadow for what we do as the church. See, this is what we are in 2022, and every Christian has been since the resurrection of Jesus onward. We are royal priests between the first and second coming of Jesus. Remember? This was a priest, and this, of course, was a governor. And we know this because of 1 Peter 2.9. But you, church, we are a chosen people, and we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the church, across time and space, we are the two olive trees. We are the two lampstands. We together are the witness to a hostile broken, rebellious world. We are life and light, and also we're covered in sackcloth because we mourn and we declare what is sin and rebellion. That is why the church is prophetic and stands in the gap and weeps all at once. Now, the third place where this image comes from is in the two most famous leaders of the Old Testament. Jews had been taught their whole lives that the end would come and would be ushered in by Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great miracle worker. Now, of course, that started on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah did show up, and Jesus was in the middle of them. And they both said, he's the one that's going to fulfill all we did. That is the sign of the beginning of the end. But the church still does their work today. We, in Jesus' name, still proclaim God's word and God's law. And we still do signs and wonders through spiritual gifts in Jesus' name. See, this again is a continuation of chapter 10. So so let me break it down like this. We are God's temple over time and space. We are God's priests standing in the gap for the world. We are God's royalty pointing and acknowledging Jesus' lordship. And we also are God's spokespeople in this world. The church is the two witnesses speaking to the world. Now it says in Revelation 11.5, now if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during that time that they are prophesying. They have the power to turn water into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, what is the result of attacking these two witnesses? Now, the examples that we have above come literally from the life of Moses and the life of Elijah. But they basically say in the end that if you attack these two witnesses, in the end, you will die. And actually, maybe this is sort of a needed moment for us to really understand the implications of this. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus by word and by action, there is eternal ripple and consequence. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 2, 5. For for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing, among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, another a fragrance from life to life. So here's the point, in the end, the nations and the demonic will attack the church and then they will die because of their attacking. They will be judged for touching God's church. Remember that time when Saul was on his way to jail, people just like us in Damascus, He had just witnessed the murder of the very first Christian, uh, Stephen, and gave his approval. And as he's on his way, just before he becomes Paul, and he's still Saul, what does it say in Acts 9-3? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? No, no. My people? No. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, well, I'm Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. So watch this. When you touch the church, you touch the head of the church, and unless you seek the head's forgiveness and join the community of Jesus, in the end, you will experience judgment, not relationship. That, that's the point of this. There is eternal consequences to what's taking place now. Now, let's go back to living in the middle like we are. Like I shared earlier in the series, our security is untouchable. That is, our resurrection is guaranteed. Satan, the world, sin, can't stop that taking place. Our sealing by the Holy Spirit cannot be removed. It's there till the day of redemption. Oh, but our safety, our safety is not guaranteed. The war against the church is real. The suffering is real. But in the end, the physical resurrection and God's vindication is also real. I love when one person said this. What is God's secret weapon in the face of the powers of this world? It is the faithful people of God sustained by the powerful spirit of God. Again and again throughout history, regimes have risen and it looks like they're going to wipe out the church and then those regimes have gone and the church that was persecuted came out stronger. When missionaries were thrown out of China, many people feared for the future of the church, but the church has prospered and rapidly rapidly grown under ongoing persecution. Between 1975 and 1978, the president of Ethiopia implemented what we now call the Red Terror. One and a half million people were killed. Church buildings were all closed down, but when that leader fell, no one was sure what would even remain of the church. But as that era ended, what emerged was Christians had been meeting en masse in secret and during persecution, the church had grown, not decreased. And that's actually the point that we're seeing here. Now, verse seven. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. Now the beast, which we're gonna talk about a lot soon, in the book of Revelation is a symbol for Satan, for the satanic powers, for principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. It's the overall summary of the last series. And this city is not just Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, you're gonna hear cities like Jerusalem, Rome, Babylon, Sodom, the country of Egypt. Here's what they all represent. They represent all the nations and all the world systems and all the religions that are against God in its many forms between the first and second coming of Jesus. The world and the devil work together and push back against God's people and even kill parts of the church in this time period. Now, this next verse is uncomfortable, but really important. For three and a half days, some from every people and tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. Now, I just want you to see that phrase. I'd never caught this before. People from every tribe, language, and nation. Watch this. That is the description of those that resist God, His church, His royal priests, His appointed prophets. But this is the exact same language that describes the church also that we celebrate. We we talked about it in Revelation 7, 9. Actually, it's one of the best descriptions of our future and our call for unity now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits in the throne, and to the Lamb. Now this is unbelievably important for Christians in any generation to understand, but especially in this moment we're facing. Here's the reality check. There's only two communities, according to God. There's actually only two cities. There's only two groups of people from heaven's view. All the divisions between different ethnic groups and gender, economic, educational levels is not the real end story. We keep devouring each other within the church, but notice from God's view, there's only two communities, two cities, two peoples as we so quickly want to divide against each other, just remember this. This is reality. This is God's view. This is what lasts. Those that belong to the Lamb from every nation, tribe, tongue, and nation, and those from every tribe, tongue, and nation that don't belong to the Lamb. That's how God views humanity. Let me read this again. For three and a half days... Some people from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. Listen. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, celebrate, by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. See, this is what we talked about in the last series. The second enemy of you and the church is the world. And like we learned a few weeks ago, the world doesn't mean the globe. It means the age. It expresses the whole social value system, system which is alien from God. It's used 186 times in the New Testament. And almost every single time you see the phrase, the world, it's not good, it's bad. So when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it really is reading, for God so loved the broken, terrible, rebellious, hostile environment. It's got an evil connotation. And remember, I talked about how there are all sorts of different worldliness. Again, Tim Keller said, one of them is secular. I don't need God. I, I'm self-sufficient. Just I just need science or fill in the blank. Another is amoral. I, glory, uh, I, I don't believe in absolutes. I'm post-truth or materialistic. I glorify the market or religion. I'm saved by my own activities. And then I added spirituality. I gained spiritual power insight beyond the Holy Spirit or Scripture. And like I shared before, all these groups fight each other thinking that they're all different, but actually in God's view, they're all the same. So let me repeat this again. Jerusalem, Rome, Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, all the nations, all the world systems, all the religions throughout time between the first and second coming of Jesus will attack, will resist, will gloat, will persecute, will mark, will mock, will marginalize, will malign, and even kill the church. And all of this will be celebrated and said, all oh, this is so good, not evil. Christians and their ongoing nattering and preaching, their call for a holy life, their call to accept Jesus Christ alone, uh, those people who keep calling what I do sin, what a bother, what a torment they are. We just need to shut them up and shut them down and remove them. They're on the wrong side of history. They're on the wrong side of everything. They'll celebrate our removal as a good thing for humanity. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered back into them. huh? Oh, and they stood to their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies were looking on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. A 10th of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake. And the survivors who were terrified gave glory to the God in heaven. And the second woe was past, and the third woe was coming. Now, there's a lot of metaphor in there, but let me just break it down. Just like Jesus physically came back from the dead. So the church will be physically raised from the dead. The point is, no matter how you view all of this, the resurrection is coming and vindication is coming. The reign of the beast and the power of the nations and their gloating over their resisting and even murdering and jailing of us is short and is not forever. Now, God knows how much we need help, how much we need encouragement. He knows we're all struggling. So that's why at this moment, he takes us up from living in the middle between the first and second coming of Jesus to remind us right now and every generation of Christians what's eternal, what the end really looks like, and and to give us comfort because he knows that the resistance is fear-inducing. So once again, at this moment, John and we are taken back to the place where history is decided. The place where everything is seen in right perspective. After the resurrection, all things will be made right. The church will be vindicated. Christ will rule over all the nations. See, the seventh trumpet is about to take place, but has not happened yet. That moment has not taken place. So it goes like this in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen? <laughs> and the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones uh, before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God and they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath, God, has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for you rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple we see the Ark of the Covenant and there came flashings of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. Again, all symbols of judgment in the Old Testament. So here's the point. We are taken, as we're learning that this is gonna be a really rough ride, to the end to remind us in the middle that judgment is real and reward is real and destruction is real, and recreation is real. And here's the point. Our God reigns. Jesus is in control. What he won on the cross will spill across all of creation in the end. In other words, Jesus wins. That's where we end chapter 11. Now, I know that some of you aren't aren't going to agree with how I preached this. That's okay. I love when I read one, a uh, pastor and scholar who wrote this. He says, you know, the main point of chapter 11 is simple. Even if you disagree with me about the temple that is measured and who the two witnesses literally are. In other words, we can disagree on the meaning of the first two sections, but I think we can agree on the main point of the chapter is this. God will protect his people, in the ultimate sense, against all satanic opposition, and they will proclaim the gospel until the kingdom fully comes. You know, I have so much respect for an old pastor named Chuck Swindoll, who, by the way, totally disagrees with everything that I just said today. He thinks all of this is literal in the future. But I love how he ends his thoughts on this chapter when he says, God transformed tragic situations into triumphant events. Underdogs become overcomers. Weakness is changed to strength. Overwhelming obstacle lead to magnificent opportunity. I think all of us as Christians, listening from all sorts of churches, but we also at Sanctus Church can say amen to that. So, okay, what do we do with chapter 11? A few things. Number one, again, like I share all the time, we so love that so many of you who join us week in and week out, either at a physical location or online, you're not believers, you're not Christians, you're seekers, you're skeptics, you maybe grew up in the church, maybe you're from another faith, no faith, spiritual, the list goes on and on. This is what God is saying to you. (laughs) Have you trusted in Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is the one who forgives. He is the one that will ultimately break the power of all the false cities and the beast. And he has the ability to forgive our sin. He is mercy, but also judge. He is love, but he's also holy. Let me just, again, this is to you who, who has not yet crossed the Christian line of faith. Let me just read this to you. This is God's statement to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in Jesus will not die or will not perish, but will have eternal life. God did not send his son Jesus in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The invitation for you today is to see where history is going, to see that actually you're invited to be saved, to be clean, to be made right, to know the living God, and actually in the end be vindicated and redeemed and not pass away in judgment with all the stuff that's leaving. All you need to do today's turn and say, I believe Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. I need him to forgive my sins. I want to live for him and not the beast, him and not myself, him and not any worldly system. I want him. And you will experience unbelievable joy. Now, I know the vast majority of us listening are Christians. And what I'm going to say, I think I've preached three times in the last two years. But let me do it again. Dear Christian, Don't be shocked as persecution is real and it grows. I shared this, I think, in the Esther series. One out of eight Christians is under direct dangerous persecution worldwide right now. Uh, A year ago, the number was 260 million. Now it's over 300 million within one year. But let me just repeat the best definition of persecution I have found is by open doors. Persecution and any, is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This can include hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. So let me just break this again down in 2022 for us living in this post-Christian, very secular, very spiritual uh, sexual revolution moment. When you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven, or when you declare God as creator and as the final say on life or sexuality, when you choose not to lie or cheat and your boss boss wants you to and you refuse to do it and then you lose access to that job or you don't gain entrance to a new place, that's persecution on a small scale. Now, again, I need to say this all the time. This does not apply to your political views. This never applies if you're a jerk. <laughs> This never applies if you break the law or cheat on your taxes, and this has nothing to do with your view on vaccines or mandates. Zero. But when you declare there's a heaven and hell, or when you gently declare with certainty and consistency that sincerity is never going to be enough to bring salvation and real life change according to God, when you stand up for the life of the unborn and the life of the elderly, when you declare that medically assisted suicide is murder from God's view, when you stand up for widows and orphans and the immigrant, also in Jesus' name, and you're rejected, that is small, that is small p, persecution. And I just want to say this again. Uh, as orthodox, confessional, historic, biblically informed Christians— We will always be, but probably more so in this moment, be attacked by the political right and left at the same time because our kingdom that we belong to does not fit nicely into the extremes of our politics of our day. We're pro-life and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name. We boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the only way to heaven, and defend at the same time, in the civic sense, everyone to believe whatever they want. We say that God calls us to holy sexual lives and has a final say on sexuality, but we at the same time resist in any way any form of violence against anyone of any sexual orientation. Those categories don't make sense to the world, but in the kingdom they do. Now, most of us won't be beaten. I don't think our church buildings will be burned. But as we all know, in Canada, we have moved from sort of apathy to a growing hostility towards Scripture, towards Jesus and the claims of our faith. And some of us have made the experience worse because we have tied our politics or other things, connected those to our faith. I wish we hadn't done that. But, but no matter, not if, but when your boss or your friend or your family member, or online, persecute you. Don't hate that person. Don't be shocked it happened or is happening because as the two witnesses, we have been promised persecution. But what are we called to do? We as Christians in the in-between moment, as we wait for vindication, are called to pray for our enemies and rejoice that we're being attacked. So easily preached. So, so, so hard to experience and understand. But what did Jesus teach in the manifesto of our movement? What did Jesus invite us into in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is Jesus talking. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me just say this, it's so important because expectations help so much. We need to think about persecution as a sliding scale, not nothing or torture and death. There's a lot in the middle. But here's the point. Revelation 11, and then as we'll see in 12 and 13, talks about... Real resistance against the church. But we're reminded that God is with us in this post-Christian, post-secular, neo-pagan moment. And he's going to walk with us through it. So number one, if you've never accepted Jesus, do it. There's life and hope and forgiveness and resurrection. Number two... Begin to reorient it, reorient your expectations, not to be fearfully expecting persecution and always sitting in the corner waiting to be hit, but just know it's not if anymore, it's when. But here's the most important things. As persecution grows in small and large ways, we must keep our eye on the future. The future must be on our forefront. At the forefront of our mind. Let, let me think it work it out like this. Do you remember when we started the book of Revelation? The whole book of Revelation starts with this glorious unveiling of Jesus and his majesty. Why? Because Jesus knew we needed to know he was better to love and stronger and in charge. So that's how we start. And then We halfway through the book sort of have this pause moment and we're brought up to see the end. And then of course, by the end of the book of Revelation, we'll get there. We have to keep those two things at the forefront. Why? Because that's how we keep going. Think about this. Millions and millions of people have prayed the Lord's Prayer today. And that passage, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day, that prayer is gonna happen in its fullness, in its entirety, Your kingdom come, your will be done is going to happen down here fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus wins. You have to keep saying to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, to your connect group, Jesus wins. So what's the goal? Well, it's not to escape. It's not to freeze. It's just to keep going. We are the two witnesses. We are the church in Canada at this moment. We are his prophet and his royal priests, you could say. What are we called to do? We're called to proclaim the gospel. We are, don't just live a Christian life, declare it. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and salvation is offered in his name alone. We must continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus unashamedly. Number two, keep loving. Keep doing the opposite of the city that we actually live in but don't belong to, and that's in the ultimate sense. Keep using spiritual gifts to preach, to heal, to set people free from the demonic, to have mercy, to come, keep being the Moses and Elijah that we're called to be. Keep standing in the gap as a holy priest. Remember, one of the actions of a holy priesthood is to stand before God on behalf of others who don't know or don't want to know and say, God, have mercy on our world. May your kingdom come. It's to continue to pray for neighbors and friends and our country because we have access to the throne room. And also, which is rarely taught or thought about, keep wearing sackcloth. Keep calling sin, sin. And keep mourning over it in in our own lives, personally, when we mess up. But beyond that, Mourn over the sin of the world. Just be a person who says, Lord, have mercy on our world. It's what you've said is wrong and it is wrong and we're asking for a new thing. Accept Jesus. Change your expectations. Have the future clear so you know who has the final say. And in the, in the in-between, keep living that boring, normal, everyday, basic Christian Lord, it's really hard for a lot of us that have been safe and lived in cultures that sort of gave us favor or protection. And as that's eroding away, the fear that is growing across the church is palpable. So our simple prayer is, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to encourage us. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to empower us. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes so they accept Jesus. Help us to rejoice when persecution comes, to have joy that's unnatural, to pray for those who persecute us, and just help us to continue to serve, to mourn, to pray, and just love and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Help us to be faithful in this difficult in-between moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen.